Rabbit season. Duck season. Rabbit season. Duck season. <laughs> Watch out for that voice step, Mac. It's a Lulu. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is episode 40 of On Taking Pictures, a weekly podcast. 40 weeks we've been here. Right? Yep. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Sidoris from FadeAndBlurred.com, and with me, fancy New York photographer, Bill Wadman. Yeah, I thought we'd uh, run out of stuff to talk about by now, but... Oh my gosh. No, we got a big show. Uh, you, you've been having a good year. You've, you've, been, you've been shooting some stuff, and that's pretty cool, right? Uh, I've been shooting a bit, yeah. Yeah. It's been all right. Uh, but uh, yeah, big year. 2013 is turning out pretty good so far. Yeah. Uh, but Bill, wh- where are we going with this photography thing? <laughs> so for the past, see how I did that? that see how I did that segue? Now, where did you where did you find this? You found this, or did, did I, I find f- it? I thought I thought you found this. Okay, so one of us found this article that came out a few weeks ago, and it's been in our show notes for three weeks now. Four right. weeks, three or four since January fourth, since my birthday. Uh, by a guy named Kirk Tuck, mm-hmm. and. It is a, a, a blog post called Where Are We Going With This Photography Thing? And it's interesting. He, he talks, okay, so he talks a lot about how uh, the usual stuff we talk about. F- photographs used to have intrinsic value because they were expensive to make individually. Uh, that there was the the idea that for a lot of old timers there was a right way and a wrong way to be a photographer and you had to know this that and the other thing and if you didn't then you were a hack and uh and and now just how everything has changed with digital obviously and in, in the way and everyone is shooting pictures and all that kind of stuff um how much things are changing because of that and he he brings up luminous landscape which is a website that I like a lot. Mm-hmm. You 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 look at them a lot? I do. Yep. They're um, they're they're one of the older sites and they're then they're still very relevant, still producing really good content. Right. But his point is a good one with them, which is that in many ways it, it, he says uh quote on that site I I the feeling I get is of a group of well-to-do men of a certain age over 40 or over 50 who've decided to embrace new tools but ignore the newer art. The site is a rich resource for learning best practices in landscape photography, uh, but the work they show is of a certain period, an aesthetic frozen in the amber of a different time. Mm-hmm. That's some harsh. Uh, it, it is harsh, uh, but I think there's some validity there. Sure. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and basically, I think his argument is that there is no right way and that one thing we need to stop doing though is trying to make another Avedon picture or another Ansel Adams picture and sure. start doing stuff on our own. That if we are beyond the the time of these individual photographers, you know, if we're beyond the historical things, we need to move beyond the historical photographs. Sure. Move beyond their methods as well. Do you think that that's a real realistic concept or do you think that that's too much? Um, I, look, I, I think that, that everyone that picks up a camera is going to gravitate to one of these photographers that have come before them. If you're, if you're a photojournalist, maybe you're going to go to, you know, Cadelka or, or even Cartier-Bresson or, or somebody more recent like Hetherington. 
uh, if you know you're going to go to fashion photographers like Avedon or, or you know whatever, um, because that's where you learn. That's that's where you that's where you kind of develop your own aesthetic, your own mode or style, right? Right. True. But to, to endlessly copy that, which there are photographers who spend their careers basically making the same photograph over and over and over again. They just swap out the subjects. Yes, true. Uh, and we've talked about a few of them here. I think I think his fear or his argument is that we're not actually doing anything new. We're just rehashing and it's it's we're becoming circular in our reference is the way that he, he puts it. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a danger of that. Uh, look, some of the most interesting, from a content perspective, some of the most interesting work that I've seen in the past couple of years has been done with an iPhone. Sure. Uh, just because it's it's a different way of seeing, and and you know, you could argue that it's software and and it's it's nothing but apps being layered upon the photographs, but I, I think there's more to it than that. Hmm. I think that the, the the trick with the phone stuff is that you always have a camera with you, and a lot more people have cameras with them now. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally would rather see the stuff not so affected in phones. And and yeah, and I think there's a place for both. My my fear about photography is not so much in this camp, but in the you know the 4K video cameras that are coming out where you can shoot 60 or 120 frames per second all the time and then just extract a yeah. single image to print. Yeah. In fact, I I was uh I saw some footage the other day. Yeah, you sent me a couple stills. Yeah, my buddy uh sent me some stills from uh, the Canon 1DC, I guess mm-hmm. it's called, mm-hmm. which is a 4K uh video camera that that it's basically like a 1D body like a pro digital slr body but it's got a 4k a sensor and it stores 4k video so that's 4098 by 32 something or something like that it's big it's about 12 megapixels and uh in video right 12 megapixels of video um and you could pull a frame out of it and you know it looks good you know i mean it looks fine it looks like a jpeg shot at 50th of a second with a Canon camera, you know, right. Right. Uh, with all the things that go along with that, you know, there's motion blur cause people are moving. Uh, there's also the issue of trying to get focus exactly right on a video camera like that. I mean, there's all mm-hmm. those, all those issues are still there. Um, yeah, because by and large, you're going to be manually focusing something like that. Yeah. And then I saw, but I saw a video, I did a little research after he sent it to me and I found a, a video of some, uh, Australian photographers were talking about, this being a new photographic tool for wedding people and wildlife people. Um, basically you could just shoot this video and then just watch the video and stop every once in a while when you see stuff that you think is a good still and print that out. And these prints are amazing. And, and Oh, here, look, we printed a bunch out and then we brought a bunch of photographers in to show them uh, what we had done and to see if the quality was up to it. And, you know, and they were all amazed by the quality. And it's like, yeah, the quality is fine. That's the quality. Assuming, you know, focus and, and, and not a lot of motion blur, the quality is, is okay. But, but that doesn't mean that that is a good way of taking pictures. Um, well, it's not a way of taking pictures. It's, it's a, it's a way of recording a scene and culling through hundreds or thousands of, yeah, of yeah. Uh, iterations right. of that scene and then pulling something acceptable. I don't, uh, the, the ultimate spray and pray. Yeah. Uh, to, to me, 
I, I mean, look, I, I understand that if you only have one shot to get a picture of some bird on something and you like hit record and you, you know, I mean, you could buy a 1D, whatever the Mark, 1D Mark IV or whatever it is. These, I mean, these cameras do 12 frames a second at 16 megapixels or whatever. It's like, you know, I mean, yeah. people have been doing that for sports guys. Years ago, I went to see uh, the US Open and I was, I just bought cheap tickets one day just so I could go. And I, so I was up back where all these photographers were up on top and you know these guys every time each side would hit it would be like right and that would be 12 to 20 frames of that particular of just a particular swing you know Mm -hmm. and it's like every single time the ball goes back and forth it's like there's like this hummingbird behind me you know Mm -hmm. um and it's it, it's fine, you know. It's just it's not the way I shoot. Maybe that's great for you know the one moment you got to get the guy kissing the girl or whatever. But I think that it takes all absolutely all of the humanity out of the photographic process. You know, yes, this, this is the, this that the point of this is the experience of taking the picture. <laughs> you know, yeah. And if yeah. and if if you know you take this to its logical conclusion, and we just have cameras everywhere capturing everything all the time. And it's like, okay, well, then we're just sitting around editing files all day long. Like, right. What the hell's the fun of that? There's a, there's a great line and uh, sentence in this, in this Kirk Tuck article where he, where he reads uh, or he says, uh, we've become almost circular in our reference right. and it's destroying the surprise and the wonder of the images that we share. Do you, do you think that he's just being cranky and cantankerous? No. Not at all. Okay. The piece that I'm, I'm writing a blog post for my own site and I read you a little bit of it the other day. Yep. That is genuinely how I feel. I, I, I became bound to photography as a process, not as an outcome. Okay. But you're still, I mean, you've admitted you're still surprised and excited to see new work on the net. I mean, you guys do these I absolutely of- am. But I, I don't know what process they went through to, I, I like seeing it. Yeah. But I'm still very much in, infatuated with the process of photography. I like not getting the shot that I was after. Okay. Because it inspires me to work on my previs, to work on my, my, my anticipation skills of, of where things are going to be, to work on focus. To, it, that inspires me to get it the next time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I likened it the other day to baseball, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, oh yes, no. You know what? It's even better. I'll give you the baseball analogy, and then I have another analogy. It's like okay. it's like saying, "Oh, let's play baseball." I can actually turn you into a six million dollar, you know, bionic man who can hit it out of the park every single time it comes across the plate. It's like, well, then that's not playing the game anymore, right? <laughs> the game is the chance. You know, right. if there's no chance, then it's not fun. You know, uh, it, it reminds me of. Um, it's like when you play video games and you find cheat codes mm-hmm. and you're like, you have some impervious thing, you know, you're in God mode and doom or whatever. Sure. It's no fun. You walk around blowing everyone away. But okay. <laughs> you, <laughs> thanks. I know I'm old. Uh, but you, you know, you walk around blowing everyone away, but it gets old very fast. Right. It's fun for like five minutes when you're like, oh, this is cool. Look, I can get past this thing that I was never able to get across to get. Okay. But you didn't get across it. Right. You didn't do anything. I, yeah. I would rather not have the Twitch skills and get owned by, you know, 12 and 13 year olds. But then, you know, after practicing, get there, right. then it, again, it's process. It's it's 
it's doing the work to get there, not just getting there. Right. Yeah. And, and, and for me as a portrait photographer, that's not at all what I'm looking for. I, I don't I just, you know, I guess I could sit there and just be shooting video and talking to my subject and, and pull frames out, but I don't know. It just doesn't feel right to me. It, it or just, it, it's what I like is that interaction. And, and somebody could say, Oh, well then you'd have more time for the interaction. Cause you could just have a camera shooting you while you're talking to people. Yeah. But you know what it is there? There was remember in that, uh, uh, side by side, uh, documentary, they mm-hmm. talked about how some of the actors took acting more seriously when it was filmed because it cost money. Right. You know, that there was a, this moment matters because it may not come again. Right. Uh, I've heard actors say the same thing about uh, being on the stage in the theater. Right. Yeah. You know, th- you, you, you do so much more prep because you get one shot. Right. Yeah. I feel like in some ways this, it could, that could be also applied to photography where, you know, you know, there, I need to give this person my attention because there are these moments in here that he's waiting for that he's going to get. And, and the idea of just sort of, oh, well, we'll just get it all and then look through it later somehow removes some of that immediacy, the presentness of it all mm-hmm. uh, to me. Well, look, there, there, I mean, let's stay on portraits for a second. There are there are moments that have that have resulted in amazing portraits over the years. But there are also those moments between the moments that have resulted in equally amazing right well these video people would say well then you get it all there's something about it right yeah i don't know what it is i can't put my finger on it but it like i know i know what you're saying i just it it just feels wrong Mm -hmm. uh and maybe that's just me being an old guy and i should go start writing for luminous landscape i don't know (laughs) well you know you've got a leica it's true. I do, I do have a Leica. Uh, I don't know. It, hey, can on this? Yeah. Um, you you were not uh, a big fan of the way Gregory Crudson made his photographs until uh, you watched this documentary. It's true. Yeah, we watched the documentary this week. Uh, uh, yeah, brief encounter for those of you who who uh, would like to look for that. It's it's really really good actually. Uh, yeah. So if you haven't seen Gregory Crudson's work, you, you should, it's very good. Uh, he tends to, he tends to take these pictures, uh, outside a lot of them, uh, at dusk with like a single person standing in the road of sort of a, a blue collar Midwest town with lights on them. It's, 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 they're kind of eerie and they, they kind of have a story and then he prints them huge. So they're like these giant eight by 10 foot prints. Uh, and you can look right into them because they were shot with an eight by ten camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're beautiful. He he does excellent stuff. And my my problem with him was always that I made the joke that you know if he's a photographer he should take his own pictures. Right. He he claims to be a photographer who's like more of a DP or a director, and he has a DP taking the pictures, which he does. He has a guy who's like the camera operator. Uh, to me, it's funny because in that documentary, even. There are scenes where he picks up his like little Canon 5D or whatever he has, mm-hmm. and he looks like he doesn't know what he's doing with it. I was, cracks, I was just going to say, you, you would say he's up. holding it wrong, right? He kind of is, right? Yeah. It's just really funny. No, it's, not over. Put your hand under the lens. He just, he just, he looks like he doesn't know what he's doing. You know, 
which is just kind of funny to me, a little, a little funny. Uh, but I have more respect for him now than I did before. Right. I, you know, I thought the film was a, was a really brilliant look. I think as, as well as could be done into why Crudson does what he does, not just how. True. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it, it looked like, uh, they spent enough time with him where, where he really opened up about his life, his childhood, what got him to where he is, why he makes photographs the way he does. Yep. And, uh, it's an interesting evolution. Um, yeah, I, I love the movie. I can't, I can't say enough about it. And, and I really like his work even more after seeing it. Uh, I agree. Um, it's, although it's, it's funny to me, Watching his process, mm-hmm. and there, there's a certain there's a lot of pre-production. There's a lot of sort of pre-visualization. He's also at the point where he's building sets that he's then taking photographs of, um, with people in them, obviously. Uh, so he comes up with these ideas. He has these movie kind of level people make these sets, and then he builds them out, and then he puts people in them, and he takes these pictures that couldn't have been gotten any other way, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Yeah. There's kitchens that look like that, but there's not kitchens that look like that, that you could back up 20 feet and still see the kitchen that way. You know, that kind right, of thing. Right. Uh, but what's interesting to me is how the process other than the money is very similar to how I or any number of people work. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a scene in the movie where there's a mother and a baby and they're trying to get the baby to go to sleep so they could get oh. this shot. And you know that, that just wrecked me. That scene, just watching that, it was so tense. Yeah, there's like an <laughs> hour just, goes by, two hours go by. The baby doesn't want to sleep and whatever. <laughs> and Heather and I are both like, the baby's cold. You got to warm it up. And then they're right. then by the end of it, they're like, so we put an electric blanket. And I'm like, you should have done that two hours ago. You would have had the damn picture by now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but it's interesting to me how how similar all that is to how we all work. I mean, it, it just get a little technical and wonky for a minute. Um. The there's a uh, so he shoots with this eight by ten camera, and he's taking these pictures at at dusk. A lot of them outside uh, with uh, like a one second exposure, mm-hmm. which at dusk with slow film on a medium format or on a large eight by ten camera, where you've got to stop down a lot to get any sort of depth of field at all, a one second exposure is actually not that long, you know. And it it kind of got me thinking. I'm like. I wonder if he composites multiple things together because one second exposure with the amount of light that he's using is not that much. Mm-hmm. And then I'm thinking, you know, maybe he takes, maybe once the person leaves the set, he takes, you know, he takes right. the five and 10 second exposures right. that right. he then comps it all together and whatever. Almost, almost like a focus stacking type of a thing. Yeah. I, okay. That's kind of what I was thinking. Or, or he could do some tilt stuff where, you know, he gets more of the road in focus. If there's nothing else in the foreground above, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, um, then, you know, I'm watching the part of the movie where he's doing uh, a lot of the post-production stuff. Right. And he's got his retouchers working on stuff and he comes in and the retouchers like, yeah, you know, I grabbed the uh, the the bathroom from this picture, and I removed the light, and I you know put this in from this other picture, and I'm like, see, they're totally compositing these things together, right. just the way I do, you know. Well, he, you know, he's he just he on this other like, level. Yeah, he shoots like 40, 50 exposures. Yeah, and the other thing I found interesting is that when you when he was looking at those uh, uh, 
the proof sheets of the exposures. Remember you had that like stack mm-hmm. of the ones with the baby right. thing? Uh, how the color was not right. Yeah, quite a bit of shift. Yeah. From photo to photo. So there's a big difference between the color between the the proofs and the actual photographs in the final. So it's kind of like you look at the final pictures a lot of times and you think, oh, you know, he knew exactly what he wanted and he wanted this color tone in the front. He wanted that. But right. then you look at the proofs and you're like, oh, he didn't get that at all. That's all in post. Right, 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 right. Um, which takes a little bit of the magic away because, again, it's exactly what I would do. Right. And somehow I feel like if, if it's what I'm doing, that's got to be the stupid, hacky, crappy way of doing it versus the really smart way of doing it. You know, I'm always kind of looking for the, 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 the more pure method mm-hmm. and workflow mm-hmm. and methodology. And I, there's a lot of things that I can make happen because I'm good at what I do and I'm good at Photoshop and I can, you know, kind of hack stuff together. But it turns out that even the big boys are doing exactly what I'm doing just on a larger scale. You know? Right, right. And selling them for $150,000 a piece. Yeah. What do you think about his, his idea of – he goes back to the, basically the same town over and over and over and revisits this town and, and, and sees different things about the town uh, to use as, as backdrops or subject matter for his photograph. As a portrait photographer, does, does, does that process interest you? going back to the same people over and over and over again and photographing them in different ways. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I didn't think that's where you're going with the question. Uh, yes. Uh, certain people, certainly. Yeah. Um, and a lot of my family and friends have been photographed a number of times, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, my partner, Heather, I've photographed her, you know, a hundred times. Um, but, but is it, and, and, and it's different. It same no, no, no. That's what I was going to say. It's, you mean, do, do I approach shooting the same person over and over again differently than I would approach a new person? Or am I approaching shooting Heather differently each time? The, the former. Are you, are, you, are you approaching shooting the same person over and over again? Would you, would you look for different qualities of that person in the way that, that, that Crudson was looking for different qualities of, of this environment? Or how would you, how would you approach it? Because it, it seems like an interesting application into portraiture to revisit people over and over again and shoot them. It does. And it's also a good way because, because unless you're shooting them with the, you know, the same very similar sort of setup and lenses and light and all the rest of it Mm -hmm. and just sort of marking time in some sort of way. Right. Um, If you're actually trying to make something different with them each time, you're also tending to be using different tools, different tricks. Right. 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 Uh, which is good because a lot of times it allows you to – we talk a lot about this on this show of how you know this stuff doesn't matter or gear doesn't matter, all the rest of it. Uh, it's, it's less that gear doesn't matter, although it really doesn't, uh, than gear should be invisible. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, and, and, and so a lot of times if you're taking different pictures of, of the same person – uh, my friend Mary or, you know, the redheaded girl or, or, or Heather, that you're coming up with new lighting schemes and new things that ultimately you're worried about the person, but you need these other things to sort of create a, an environment around them to shoot in, you know, whether it's the light or, you know, whatever it is. Um, 
so I, I tend to find that I, I like shooting people over and over again because it actually pushes me in new directions when it comes to technical stuff. Right. Because right. I have to. Cause it's like, oh, I've already shot them with, you know, one big light, on a gray background. Let me now. What can I do? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it seems it seems like it's an interesting exercise. Yeah. You know, He's, somebody like like Rankin who shoots, you know, Heidi Klum a hundred different ways. Yep. You know, that seems it's interesting. easy to do that. Well, yeah, it's Heidi Klum, but you know, he's, he's, he's doing different setups and, and different looks and different yep. technical constraints. And, and that in and of itself seems like a valuable exercise. Uh, it, 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 yeah, it is entirely. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the thing with Crudson is that, yes, he's going to these places over and over again. He doesn't shoot in the same places over and over. I mean, he's shooting in the same town. Right. But, but he's shooting very different vantage points. It's true. Uh, although, and, and to the point, I mean, yes, he has people in his pictures, but I don't see his photographs as portraits. Mm-hmm. Um, no, the people I, that, are props. That's what I was saying is yeah. how, how would it be different applying it to portraiture? Yeah. yeah the location is, is, is the subject for a mm-hmm. lot of his pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How would it be different? I think if you, yeah, it's staying with one person or staying with just one family or something. That's kind of how it feels with his pictures, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but he seems also seems a little obsessed by that town. You know, I've been in that town. Is it? Uh, it's a uh, Pitts Pittsfield, Mass. Yeah, yeah, around that area. Uh, and it's not. It's not pretty. You know. Uh, it, is you know, it? There is that, it more romanticized in his photographs than it really is? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, well, w- when they show him just driving around, and you're like, "Wow, that place is kind of a dump." Okay. Like that's it's it's. I mean, you know what it is? It's it's it's. It's these blue collar towns in New England that used to have industry that no longer have the industry. Okay. The factories and the mills and things yeah. have closed. Exactly. So there's and all the these big giant are, okay. brick warehouse buildings, you know, that used to be a factory for some metalworking company that no longer is in business because they don't have government contracts or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the kind of place I grew up next to Waterbury, Connecticut, which was a very, where Andy Leibowitz was born, um, which which is very much the same way, you know, it's, it's sort of a shell of what it was when say my father's growing up there, you know? Um, but I think that's part of that decay is what Crudson loves about that place. Yeah. Well, I found the film hugely inspiring. I got to tell you. I, I do too. Just... And I, but at the same time I, I sat there and I went, you know what, if I had a good team of people, you know, if Heather and I, and if Jeffrey and Nikki were living on near us and a couple other people, if I had six or seven people to work with to pull the stuff together, we could do stuff on this level. You know, Ooh, I don't know. That's a, I, I appreciate the confidence, but I think we could, you know what? The I, only I, thing I didn't, the only thing I was kind of, I'm a little bit weird about in his, well, first of all, two things, when they showed some of his earlier pictures, like the whole Jack and the Beanstalky one. Okay. Uh, and then there was another one that was kind of similar, like the, his earlier, Oh, the one with the uh, porta potties. Right, and, right, with the with the the hose coming yeah, off the yeah, truck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they were they did not have nearly the subtlety or technical excellence that the later stuff had. No, they no. looked very thrown together. Well, I I think they, that, they looked they looked very uh, not amateurish, but just sort of you know not high end. More like a college project, less yes. like yeah, yeah, sure, I can um, see that. Which just but I think that's sh- part of the beauty of it is you see his progression. It, no, absolutely. But but see, we so oh man, I oh I want to go in two directions right now. All, All right, is, hit it. No. Go. Well, I I was I was 
there there is that there's that question. We're we're going to come back to Crutzen. Okay. But there's that question of if you are an artist and you are trying to come across as an artist, how do you is is it correct to lie to exude infallibility? Lie about your work or lie about yourself? Lie about your how you got there. You know what I mean? Um, I put pictures up, for example, I put pictures up on my, uh, blog that are not pictures that would ever make it to my portfolio. You know, some friend of mine comes over, somebody comes over, I'm, I'm take some portraits of somebody and they're okay portraits. I mean, you know, to some people, they might be really great portraits. I don't, you know, whatever. But if, if something didn't work for one reason or another, you know, like sure, it, it sure. didn't quite happen, uh, or even stuff in December. There's a few of those that I'm like, oh, this is good, but not great. You know, this right. is not going to, uh, I still put those up. Now there are some people who would say, and there's some art- artists quote unquote that I know who never put anything up except for the really excellent stuff. And they only put one thing up every two months, mm-hmm. you know, and what they end up having is this, this pure wall of excellence even though if somebody hired them to do work, you couldn't guarantee that you'd be one of those projects that was that good. Right. You know what I mean? Like sure. is, I, I have, I feel some level of, um, I feel like it's my job in some way. And it's partly because of the, just the way I see the world and partly because I'm self-taught and partly because of all those kinds of things, the way I am. I I am very open about all this stuff. I mean, we sit here and talk on the show about how I feel like a failure sometimes and that kind of stuff. Right. I don't think you see, you know, you don't see Crutzen saying, ah, this, these pictures suck. <laughs> you know, no, he stands up you, there. You, you do see him angst over the process. You do yes, see him yes, yes, think, yes. you know, there, there's that scene where he says, every time I, I, I go I to feel a like shoot I'm day. Throw up. Yeah, I, and I feel like I'm going to blow this picture. I yeah. feel like I'm not going to be able to do it. But he it. never says, sometimes I blow the picture, which of course he does. Sure. You know, it's sort of like there's this, yes, there's, he, he, he's showing you the artistic, like, oh, look, he's an artist stuff behind mm-hmm. the scenes. But he, but he never shows you the fact that, like, not all your works on always going to be on the same level. You right. Know, you have ups and downs artistically. And I mean, he even admits for whatever, what is the series called? The Roses? What was Beneath it? the Roses. Beneath the Roses. He said, you know, we shot, I forget what he said, 200 things or something like that, right? But there's only like 100 of them or 80 of them in the final thing, which means there's a lot of those that he didn't, he got rid of. Right. You know, that didn't make the call, you know, which is fine. But, and and I'm just wondering, like, is that the way to go? Is it better to have this air of invincibility? I think it depends on how you want your relationship to be with, with your tribe, with with the people around you. Okay, with the wait, 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 that, but who's who's my tribe? Is my tribe the listeners of the show, or is my tribe my clients? You know, um, my th- clients can go crossover. see my blog and see stuff that 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 I don't think is very good, and maybe they go, oh, I don't know if I want to hire Bill because look at this kind of mediocre picture he took. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Um, you don't think that's a problem? I, I don't know that it's a problem. I think that it's it's part of the changing nature of this industry, of of many industries, but particularly to to photography, is everybody wants to see behind the curtain. 
Yeah, you know? but I want to see the behind the scenes. I want to see. But even the I behind wanna... the scenes are often very uh, cultivated. Well, yeah, don't. Yeah, that's a, that's another topic. What what has become accepted as a behind the scenes video is ridiculous. It's nothing more than a commercial for the shoot. Right. Uh, that that's not behind the scenes. But uh, process shots, seeing seeing the humanity of the people creating the work is interesting. And I don't think, at least personally to me, it doesn't detract from the quality of the work that they're able to produce. Okay. I mean, maybe to a client that has five minutes to look through a site and they see, you know, a couple pictures that are sevens or eights and they wanted to see all tens, maybe that's going to affect them. But I think that's very short-sighted. Right. I think that, that part of, and, and it, it kind of goes to, to oh gosh, what, yeah, what, but what was if, it? What if, that, what if that person is looking is your potential big break? Well, and that's, that's the thing is... Because is, you don't get that many big breaks. Right. You don't get that many big breaks. So I, I see where you're going, where what's the line that you, that you walk? Uh, do, you, do you only put up the 10s right. and say, look, this is how amazing I am? Right. Um, or do you put up the road that got you there. I shouldn't even talk about the fact that I screw up sometimes. You know, there are, there are people who argue that, right? Sure. Uh, okay. But look, well, it, I'm not a huge sports fan, but, but in baseball, what, what's a high average? We're, we're, uh, 300. 300 is a high average, right? 300. Yes. Batting so average that means, 300. Good. That, that, that means you're failing 70% of the time. Yep. <laughs> so true. I, you know, I mean, I think it's a matter of perspective. I think it's a matter of how you how you you relate to your audience. I really do. I you know, I mean, I think I, I think that I get points for people who listen to me and at my talks and at my workshops and stuff, showing that I'm that I don't always do it right. Right. Because that makes people feel like, oh, I'm not always doing it right, and so therefore, you know, I'm, you know, I can take pictures like Bill if they want to take pictures like me. You know, I I think that there's there's certainly value in it from the point of view of the photographic industry as it were, as far as, uh, people, you know, when I talk to people and whatever, I wonder if it's crippling to me, not crippling, detracting from me as a working photographer, you know, a wedding photographer doesn't put a mediocre shot up. All they put are the ones that are like, Oh, right. You know, and that's how they get gigs. Even though, when you when they come shoot your wedding, there may be one or two of the Oz, and the rest of them are just okay wedding pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, there aren't that many moments that are that perfect, unless of course you shoot 4K video and then just spend your <laughs> afternoon. Uh, I I don't know. I mean, it's this is an interesting topic. Um, how how visible and how how open do you make yourself to? the people that see your work. Yeah. And, and yes, there are different, you know, photographers will have their portfolio site and they'll have their, their blog site. If I'm, if I've got my art director hat on or, or if I've got a creative director hat on, Do you go look at the blog. Sure. Absolutely. And you Uh, understand the difference. Not you. I do. Yeah. Okay. No, but you would, you would, you would understand that there's a difference looking at it the way. Okay. Sure. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to look at a photographer's portfolio and then, you know, or, or if I happen to, to land on their blog first and see the iPhone shots of their vacation, I'm not going to assume that that's, that's indicative of their, their, their talent or ability. You should, because it is indicative of their talent <laughs> and ability. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I would be more impressed with 
with seeing what you can do with a mediocre shot or with a difficult shoot or with a hard to work with client because those things are going to come up in the real world. Right. And to see how how you bounce back from that. You know, oh, one of your lights broke. Now what do you do? Uh, you know, you dropped your lens on the way into the shoot. Now what do you do? Right. You know, how how you get around some of these things, that's more interesting to me. Um, having visibility or access to the not so great photos, I think it comes down to context. Uh, I think you're right. I just, I battle with this myself. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, you're in a, such I, a different league than I am. I, I, I censor I'm, myself on my webs, on my blog. Yeah. I mean, see, there are times I, when I don't put stuff up because I'm like, eh, this isn't good enough to put up. See, and I don't. I'm happy to put up, you know, I crappy sh- pictures I of dumpsters. I used to be more like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but your pictures of dumpsters are good. Um, I, you know, your pictures of dumpsters are not trash, Jeffrey. Um, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> why do you think your pictures of dumpsters are such garbage? Um, you know, so can we get back to Crudson for a minute? I think yes, that that's absolutely. okay. Uh, the other thing I found interesting is that, so he, he wanted to get this cinematic look. So he hires all these cinematic guys, right? Right. People who work in film, right. which means that they're using all these big giant hot lights. Yeah. On cranes and hanging yeah. from cables. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's and, impressive to look at. No, it totally is. And then they're, then, you know, he's got the smoke machines, right? You know, cause that's, mm-hmm. that's his other big thing. Um, almost every, almost every shot was just like, all right, turn the smoke machine on. Yeah. But it, you know, it, it gives atmosphere. It gives depth. It really does. I'm going to, context. It works. I'm buying a smoke machine. Are you really? (laughs) I'm going to get some Roscoe gel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, you know, uh, here's, here's my problem is that uh, my question he's, he's taking, why use hot lights? Why not use strobes? It's like he wants that cinematic look, but he could get that cinematic look. It's just, I find you know it what? interesting. I'll tell you exactly why. I'll tell you exactly why. Why? I'm, I'm, Crudson, I'm in your head. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Let's go. Gregory's I, like, get out of my head, Jeffrey. Yeah. I, I think it goes to, it, it, it speaks to, you know, remember this, there's a scene in the film where he, he addresses why he's not behind the camera. Uh, that he wants his, the, 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 the purest, most intimate connection to the subject matter in the photograph. So I think – I don't think strobes would give him that. I think the reason he's using the type of lighting that he does is so he can as closely as possible be in that story, be in that moment, be in that scene the way it's going to appear Yes, and there's there's portrait photographers who like to be in front of the camera. Avedon like to be in front of the camera so that he could see. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's. I, I really. Ju- I think it's a. It's an immersion. I think it's a. It's a level of immersion that he feels that he couldn't get anywhere else, and he's been cultivating it for so many years now that it's 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 become part and parcel to his photographs. I don't think that that he could separate his process from his from his end product at all. Uh, I know what you're saying. I think that the way he goes about it is a little self-important. You know, okay. I think I think he could be the guy holding the plunger. <laughs> you know, instead of going um, hold, sure, maybe fi- but, fire the camera. But you know, <laughs> who you know who am I to judge? He gets yeah, no, he does. He gets very good results. I just think the whole thing is a little like. I still think take you know what. 
if you're gonna if you're not gonna do your own retouching, you're not gonna do your own sets, you're not going to do your own lighting. At least hit the damn plunger. <laughs> like that's, that's that's all I have to say. All right. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, definitely uh, worth the cost of admission to see the movie. Yep, by far. Yep. Uh, and I'm sure it's going to be uh, out on DVD or something soon. What, what did the guy say? Uh, I don't remember the date. It's supposed to be released soon, though, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I also found it interesting at the end of the movie. Uh, spoilers. Um, <laughs> at the end of the film. Uh, Darth Vader turns out to be Crudson's father. <laughs> uh, he uh, He's in Rome shooting these crazy film sets. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're not using film. They're, he's shooting as a digital back on this little camera. Yeah. Isn't it one of the Al- Alpa? Yeah, it's like Alpa an Alpa cameras? or a Cinars, you know, one of those fancy large format, medium format, movement yeah. based, there, fancy Swiss things that. There's a book of it uh, on, uh, I think it's one of the Abrams books. We of, should talk about that. The new Crudson thing. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We got to get the uh, Roses one too. Yes. All right. Well, make that happen. <laughs> uh, all right. So what do we got? We talked about that. We talked about that. We talked about Crudson. I think it's time to talk about uh, Jeffrey's new camera. <laughs> yeah. You know, can I tell you, I have already developed uh, uh, probably a very unnatural obsession with my camera. <laughs> All right. So what did you get? Uh, I ended up going with a, a Fuji X-Pro1. And this is uh, that different than the 1E or whatever you had before? The XE1. Um, the XE1, first of all, the, the, the XE1 that I that I did get was defective. It just, okay. it refused to focus uh, even on a tripod and metering was all over the place. I mean, it would, it would vary f- two to three stops um, from shot to shot, again, on a tripod static subject. So something definitely kind of wonky with the camera. Um, but I didn't, I didn't, it was too small. It just felt a little too small in my hands. Uh, the, the X pro is, you know, it's, it's a metal box. That's, that's all it is. Right. And, and, uh, I, I, I really like it quite a bit. Um, it's, uh, one of the things that, that, that I like about it is the simplicity of it is it, it feels, Hmm, this is going to sound horribly pretentious, but no, it no, just, what does it feel like? It, <laughs> You're such a dick. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know how to describe it. It just. It. 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 I don't have. I don't feel like I'm thinking about the camera. You know. It, sure. There, there. There are just a couple dials on it. There's the uh, the shutter speed dial and an EV dial, and then the the uh, I got the thirty five one four, and it's got a an actual aperture ring on it, uh, which I like. Uh, it just. It feels solid. Um, the uh, the other thing that I got was uh, this little thumb grip from uh, a company called Match Technical, um, and it, you you look at this and you wouldn't think it would help. It's a little thumb grip. It slides into the hot shoe, right? And it it it's amazing how how much more stable the camera feels in your hand. Just having your thumb up a little higher and resting against this thing, rather than on the X Pro my thumb was resting basically against the AE lock button or there's a little, there's a little multifunction dial. And and I was, my thumb was resting against that and I would kind of press it inadvertently a couple times. Sure. 
Um, but it, this little this little thumb thing, it's called a thumbs up. Uh, the model that I got was the EP7S. Uh, it really changes the ergonomics of the camera quite a bit. And I, I didn't think it would when I first saw it, but I'm, I'm kind of blown away by it. So um, huge thank you to, uh, to Tim Isaacs uh, at Match Technical. Um, you, you guys, if you, if you have a, an X-Pro or even a Leica, he makes them for Leicas. Uh, uh, I think he's got some new ones coming out for the X10 and the X20. Uh, but it really does make a difference in in the handle handling of the of the thing. Right, and uh, uh, he sent you one of those little things for the shutter release too. The shutter release, yeah, yeah, and, and again, it's one of those you would you would think like, really, do I need a, a little soft release button? But it it really does help. You know, uh, the, I'm kind of surprised by how how much these little things help. Okay, uh, so uh, very cool. Check them out. We'll, we'll put a link. Okay, yeah. Um, but God, the, the files that come out of this camera are beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm you just s- using JPEG so far. Um, there, there's some question to, to how uh, Lightroom handles the, the raw format because the, the sensor is different than the traditional Bayer sensor in it most of the It still does a pretty good job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you should shoot JPEG for a while, even though I'm a big raw guy and we're going to get yelled at for that. I think you should do JPEG for a while, and I think you should turn down the noise reduction a little bit. Yeah. Because some well, of them look, pictures end up look, they're like a little bit of that sort of plasticky look, and I think yeah. it's because of the noise reduction. What I would like to do, my, my, my goal for this is to treat this camera like a digital film camera, if I can. And that is, I, I want to turn off the display or the, the, uh, the preview uh, and just see what I get. You know, part of... Part of why I got this camera was it 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 seems to have sort of re-excited me about taking pictures. Really? Yeah. Okay. And I can't quite put my finger on why. Um, it's it's something beyond just you know I'm going to get you know comments about oh it's the retro styling of it or whatever. and I'm, there may be something to that, but I think it's the simplicity of it. I think it's it it doesn't feel like a gadget. Okay, are you shooting manual or are you shooting with some of the uh automatic modes? I'm shooting uh in aperture priority or manual so far. Okay. Okay. And uh you know that little thumb thing you got? What's yes. it called again? Uh it's called a thumbs up. Okay. And the model that I got is it's an EP7, I think. Okay. EP7. And it's, it's just different ones for different cameras, right? Different ones for different cameras, yeah. It's got, you know, little silicone Yeah bumpers on it and it's, that is it's funny because that's the way that you're holding the camera with that thing on it is very much how say i hold a leica because you tend to have your thumb kind of cocked into the thumb the film advance right lever right. and so it's almost like they they got rid of the film advance lever uh but they didn't think that people actually use that for something other than advancing the film mm-hmm so do you, okay, when you're shooting, do you find that, that, I mean, am I crazy? Doesn't, does it offer more stability? It seems to. No, I think it does. Certainly. Yeah. And that's, that's the crazy thing is that I think that it's, it's, it does make a big difference. It's just that it, it's, it's almost like they forgot, which is mm-hmm. still why I think feel like if, okay, part of what made Leica's really great was that they had these cloth shutters. So it was like this mm-hmm. kind of sound when, when you take a picture, it's like, Right, right. And with with the digital ones, it's a metal shutter now, I think. And 
it auto advances. It auto cocks the shutter. So you, it was the the thumb wheel on on an old Leica. It, it both advances the film and it cocks the shutter. Okay. And I kind of feel like they should just they should have just made one that's digital, that doesn't have the motor in it, that's still cloth, that the thumb wheel just cocks the shutter, so that it can still be instead of. Right. It's like I don't want that every time. I just want. You know. Still. Yeah. Let me still do it. Yeah. Yeah. That was part of the fun. You know, part of the meditation mm-hmm. as it were uh i don't know, I don't know. It's just it's just it's so th- having a little thumb thing at least that gives you that back you know yeah it's i mean it's look i mean it feels I'm, more I'm, secure yeah it does yeah. it does um and i'm just excited about shooting again wait is it sitting you know? there right next to you uh no it's out in the other room hmm. uh, uh but yeah i'm excited about shooting again i've started a photography notebook of ideas for different little essays or projects or something. And, well, and like I've told you, I want like five pictures a day. I know. I know. I'm, I'm, and I'm excited to do it. Your Squarespace site is set up, man. What are you doing? <laughs> Sorry, You're all ready to go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it has those weird film sort of uh, looks, right? In there. Right. Uh, they, they're uh, film simulation modes, they're calling them. So did, did you know, the Provia, Velvia, Ostia, mm-hmm. do they actually look like Provia, Velvia, and Ostia? Uh, never having shot any of those three films, I couldn't tell you, but they are very lovely. Okay. The Velvia is, you know, it's it's not a Kodachrome, but it's a kodachrome you know, very saturate, very punchy, right. a lot of contrast. Yeah. Um, the Astia is, is really smooth. Um, so far, I, I've used that on a few shots of Nick and beautiful skin tones that that uh camera gets a lot of has a lot of dynamic range i was looking at some charts Mm -hmm. Uh, that's one thing i'm a little jealous of (laughs) uh yay (laughs) (laughs) really it's like that it's like that you're excited because you are making me jealous i yeah well a little bit uh, I, look, I'm, I'm excited that I get to contribute. I'm excited that I get to put something into the flow for criticism instead of just criticizing and, and, and I, I, we are all excited as well. I'll speak, yeah. and I'll I know speak for the audience. Look, I know it's going to be crap, but no, it, it, no, it's, it, why is know, it going to be crap? Cause I have a lot to learn, but I'm excited about going through that learning process. Now, wait a minute. Isn't this camera, isn't there something wrong with it though? Uh, well, no. Yes and no. There, one of the buttons sticks, uh, but they're they're sending me another one. Okay. So, man, you, know, you are not happen. getting, but you are not getting good luck with the Fuji Q and A, or uh, you know, yeah, it happens. Really? Could be shipping. Could, yeah, I'm not worried about it. QC, I guess, is the word. Quality control. There, look, modern electronics. The customer is quality control. Modern products. I mean, you, you could say the same thing about cars. There's no quality control anymore. The customer is quality control. Yeah, I guess you're right. I, you know, and I, I had more problems with my stupid Mark III. Remember all that back and yeah. forth with the screen? Well, look, the- you know, every camera that has come out in the past, well, I don't want to say every, but many cameras that have come out in the past five years have had problems with them. You know, True. Canons have had problems with focusing. Uh, you know, Nikon's had shutter problems and, and, and LCD screens turning purple. I mean, look, it's, it's just part of the thing. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, man, we got a lot of emails. I think maybe we, we did should get a lot dive of into these emails. 
Okay. You want to go that direction? Sure. Anything sure. you want to uh, do before we do that? Um, did you want to talk about this morality of manipulation thing? Oh, yeah. Nate Larson's uh, post, which is actually pretty good. So he, a uh, guy I know, is a photographer up in Vermont or New Hampshire. Vermont, New Hampshire, somewhere up there. Uh, and I know him from way, way back. And he, he did a post called The Morality of Manipulation. And of course, he shows, you know, some examples of stuff from the 1800s where people were changing a lot of stuff, stuff from 1930s, you know what I mean? That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And of course, he shows the picture of Madonna before and after. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he brings up the Dali picture. <coughs> Basically, a lot of what he's saying is it is a tool to, to you know photoshop is 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 a very wonderful tool and it could be used for wonderful creative expression but that much like you know a black belt uh uh you know it's like it's it's, it's bad if a kid finds his parents gun you know like you you have to you have to know when to use it when not to use it and why to mm-hmm. use it like mm-hmm. why you're using it. intent has meaning sure you know um and it's a very good uh, little article we'll put it in the show notes it's a good it's a good post about this kind of stuff and how in our society how how do we define photoshopping and what's too much manipulation and he talks about how you know national geographic and other places you know even if you crop a picture then it's no good you know that kind of stuff uh yeah what was there was a guy that that photo photoshopped out a bag yeah and was disqualified from one of their competitions yeah because you know what i mean if 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 you have a rule you have to, i mean that's the kind of thing where you have to be absolute because if you're not mm-hmm. then it's just a slippery slope right you know uh and 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 he you know he admits that he manipulates stuff and everyone manipulates stuff and it's part of the thing uh but that you know you, you, why are you manipulating and 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 what are you trying to do and that a lot of the negativity around it is around the fact that like we were talking about earlier in this thing where everyone's trying everything's trying to be perfect uh, back to that what are we doing here where are we going mm-hmm. uh and and some of that stuff just goes too far you know i mean perfection right. perfection is overrated um well it's i mean it, it was back uh... Was it two weeks ago that we talked about Norman Jean Roy, or was it last week? That would be last week. Okay, uh, I, I really liked what he what he said about uh, the sterility of of certain genres of photography and in chasing perfection. Sure. Uh, and then you chimed in with it; it's sort of lost a sense of humanity. And I, I, I think that there's there's validity in that. Where it, I mean, look, some of the most iconic photographs in history are not sharp. Mm-hmm. They're, they're noisy. They have poor dynamic range, but they're beautiful photographs. They're, they're compelling photographs. They're emotionally rich photographs. Yeah. And, and I think that there, but there's even in his little post, you know, he has that picture of Madonna looking all mm-hmm. old and craggly and then Madonna, like on the actual cover of the thing, mm-hmm. uh, the before and after retouching. Uh, I think that that is interesting if only so that someone who doesn't do this all the time can look and see, they take a picture and it looks like the one on the left. And they think, how am I ever going to look like all the pictures by insert famous photographer here? Right. You know what? Those famous photographers pictures do not look like that out of camera. Right. None of them do. 
you know, uh, you know, Rankin, Leibowitz, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, Seliger, you know, mm-hmm. all these guys that they, they're all have teams of people, armies of top end retouchers, basically turning these things into photo illustration in order to make what you see that has their name at the bottom of it. And so there's maybe a, at least a little bit of, uh, uh, you can get, it's, it makes you feel a little bit better that, you know what, my stuff's not perfect. Well, you know what, their stuff isn't perfect either. You know, and if right. you want to look like their stuff, yes, you could spend lots of time getting really good at Photoshop. The trick is, you know, you, you, you tend to get to a place, I am not amazing retoucher i'm i'm a a, i'm a good to competent to excellent retoucher but i'm not an amazing retoucher Mm -hmm. Uh, even though i am in the new adobe press book uh, <laughs> oh wow! I still haven't uh, got my copy of that book yet. I, I was going to say, will there be several autographed copies available? Yeah, I should actually try to get some. Uh, <laughs> Iberian X Perla's new book—it's uh, a Photoshop master, Adobe Photoshop masterclass, masterclass Photoshop. Uh, anyway, there's a chapter by me, in it, and it's like, okay, well, somebody could say, oh, you're a Photoshop master now. It's like, well, yeah, I know a lot of stuff, but I don't know. There's still a lot of stuff that I don't know. And, You're no and, Bert Monroy, Mister. Exactly, and but there, but there's certain there's a certain uh, point at which uh, you start learning this stuff, and and you get these, you figure something out, some smoothing somebody's skin or whatever it is, and you go way over the top, mm-hmm. way across the line. And it's funny how over time you tend to pull back. Uh, it, it's uh, Annie Leibowitz said the same thing actually. She was talking about um, her lighting. That she used to have, if she was shooting an environmental portrait and there was enough light, but she would still have one big light on the subject in the front. And a lot of the stuff from the 80s and stuff, you'll see that it's a good stop or two above ambient, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and that as time has gone on, the the she keeps pulling down the main light. So now right. it's a half a stop or a stop below ambient. Right, right, so right. it's almost, her, her big lights are almost fill. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind um, of filling in. Yeah. And and it's interesting. If you look at her pictures, you can see this change over time. And it's like this, it's, you know, I, yes, I have the technique and yes, I can prove to you that I can, you know, light and also have ambient light, but it, it's better if the lights are invisible. It's better mm-hmm. if the technique is invisible, you know, ideally all of this stuff, all of these tools is just to tell a story. Sure. You know, uh, you have your new camera and yes, you like it and it works good for you. And you have this, you know, the thumb thing that whatever, that's fantastic. Now, what pictures are you going to make with it? You know, and, well, that's, and that's ultimately, yeah. that's ultimately the only thing that matters. Yes. doesn't matter what camera you use, you know, and it's just, it's no, you get the one that feels good to you. Yep. And if this, and if this Fuji X pro one feels good to you, great. Now, now what, you know, mm-hmm. cause there's a lot of people who stop where you are. Hey, right. I found a camera that feels great for me. Okay. That's step one. No, 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 no. That's step negative one. Yeah. <laughs> you are now at zero. Yeah. You were at negative five before yeah. you, you found you, a You've camera. got your brushes and your palette knives and, and yeah. now what are you going to do? You're not a painter yet. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a painter no, once you've made paintings. Th- this, is, this is what's so exciting is now all the stuff that we talk about, all the stuff that I look about, all the stuff that I write about, now is my chance to put that through my filter, my grid, and see what comes out the other side. Yeah. And I'm so excited about that. Yeah. No, I I, I completely agree. Uh, it's exciting. 
All right, so now let's get some emails. But that would that, uh, that anyway. We'll put the we'll put the link to the morality manipulation. I just thought it was interesting. Hmm. Uh, anything else? Uh, no. Okay. No. Where do you want to start? You want to start with Aaron's email about? Uh, I like this one about buying art. Yeah. Where's that one? Let's see here. Collecting art from deceased artists on a budget. Hello, Bill and Jeffrey, or Jeffrey and Bill. Hmm. It's interesting. He put me first and no, no, I'm just kidding. Wow. <laughs> no, he put you first in the other half. <laughs> and you're the one announcing the show. Uh, my name is Aaron Chen. I emailed you a while ago asking for advice on printers, blah, blah, blah. Okay. I had a question or two this time about collecting art. I hope you haven't answered something like this already. I'm like six weeks behind again on podcasts, so apologies if – no, we haven't talked about this. I recently finished reading the Kertesh book by Michael Frizzo and uh, Annie LeRae. Wow, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that name. That's a tough one. Yeah. Uh, and really loving some of the images in there. The Brian Park photo from 1949 is my favorite. Uh, I would love to have prints of these images, but I know Kertesh passed away in 2010. This leads me to my questions. How would you guys go about in obtaining a print from a deceased artist? Uh, number two, how do you feel about, say, replica prints and posters if original prints are too expensive? Uh, okay. I saw a large printed signed by Kritesh copy uh, priced at $22,000. True. Yikes. Uh, number three, is there a decent quality licensed producer of prints that does so at prices normal people can afford? Sorry for the long email. Aaron, this is not a long email compared to many of the emails we get. Yeah. Uh, this is this is a very short one. Thank you for being short. Um, okay, number one. How would you guys go about obtaining a print from a deceased artist? I will, um, I will preface this by saying that I don't own a lot of art. Jeffrey is actually a better person to talk to. You own more of this stuff than I do and not photographs. You won't, but you, you are more in this world than I am. Yeah, I mean, I've I've got um, I've got a, uh, a few Rauschenberg prints um, and some you know, Shepard some Fairy of, stuff. Some she- well, the, yeah, I've got some of his silkscreen signed silkscreen prints right. or, or silkscreens. Um, it really depends. I mean, one of the more popular places online is actually just art.com. Uh, they've worked with uh, the way I understand it. They've worked with uh, licensing the actual media and and produce you know van gogh and and you know da vinci and george o'keefe and that kind of thing um and i've I, I i understand the quality is pretty good i i think that's who i looked at i wanted a rothko print and i think that, you know what let me just look uh i think that's who and they had them I, on there mm-hmm. and how much money are we talking hold on yeah okay so uh 32 let's say $50 for 25 by 30 Rothko prints. Right. Here's, I guess here's the problem, but they're, you know, they're going to be offset prints. They're not going to be, you know, lithos or, or. Okay. Well, okay. That's, that's the big thing here. That's, that's the, the, the bug in the ointment, right? Mm -hmm. Why? Okay. Why are you buying these prints? Are you buying prints as an investment? Well, then Mm -hmm. you really need to get the print signed by the guy. Yes. Other than that, it's not going to be worth anything. Replica this, you know, uh, reprodu- reproductions that, it's all just posters on your wall. Which right. if it, you want the photograph on your wall so you can look at it, yeah, go buy them. Or go buy a book and cut the thing out, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's certainly a very reasonable way of doing it. Um, 
I, I mean, I have, you know, I have, I have a poster of a Caravaggio painting on my wall, uh, which is a little college, but I love the painting. So I'm fine with it. Um, but if, but, but if you're, you know, replica prints that cost that much money, you know, is one thing is, is those are cheap. Any, any like big deceased artist is probably still their estate is probably still represented by some gallery and oftentimes they still have prints that are signed and whatever by the person. Of course, once they die, they're worth even more money. Right. So, because, okay, now they're going to be And depending on more. who they are, is, right. it, I mean, who knows how yeah, much. Saul Leiter is 92 years old. If Saul Leiter dies next year, you'd be better off buying a Saul Leiter print now than next year. Right. Um, but I'm sure next year you could still buy, go to Greenberg Galleries and buy a Saul Leiter print. It just may cost $20,000 instead of $10,000. Now... Any print of any artist that you really love that is around, you know, that you've heard of, if you want to buy a Joel Meyerowitz print or a Saul Leiter print or, a, you know, any of these people, it's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. We talked about, um, we talked about the Meyerowitz stuff. I remember, what was I saying? $5,000 for the cheap ones? Yeah. 20, for a small, for a very small 11 by print. 14 print. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't afford that kind of money. I mean, that's, that's, that's when you are, um, I think when you have literally disposable income, go buy art. Sure. You know, I want this beautiful thing on my wall for my fancy apartment and I've got money to burn and $5,000 is not a big deal to you. I can't right. spend $5,000 on a piece of paper, you know? Um, I don't know. What do you think? I, I would mean, love I, to be able to, but I just can't. I, I, I do think it comes down to, to why you want them. You know, I mean my, the Rauschenberg pieces that I have, for example, they I mean, they're just they're prints from I think Nikki got them from from art.com and you know they're not signed and but I, I don't care. I'm not I don't want them as an investment. I, I want I want art on my wall just to surround myself with things that inspire me. I'm not looking right. at them as investments. Right. In which case getting a print is a completely different thing. You know? Sure. Um I mean I look, I sell prints. I don't sell that many prints. Um and I sell them fairly cheaply, you know. Hundred dollars, fifty dollars, one hundred fifty dollars. Like the big ones are maybe hundreds of dollars, but they're big, you know. Um, but they're signed and they're stamped and they're, you know, they're from right. me. And maybe one day I'll be famous enough that that's worth something, you know. I think that they're certainly worth the money that I charge for them, as far as how much time it took me to make whatever it is that you're getting a copy of. And I don't make that many prints, so they're like pretty limited runs, you know. Uh, but but there's there's a lot of there's a lot of fluff in this industry I think where people are buying stuff that they don't really know what they're buying, or they're, uh, you know oh this is this is a yeah replica or a, or a side print or you know a lot of in the art world I mean William Klein, I think it was in the Genius Photography stuff where he's talking about how there's people but they used to make work prints for magazines where they'd make a print to send to the magazine for reproduction purposes. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those work prints and things are now the things that are getting traded, even though it was literally a quick print to get it to the magazine and then stuck in a folder somewhere, you know, right. A, a test print. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And it Something might, it for might them be to kind of comp in. Yeah. It's stamped on and, and whatever it is. And like those are creases in them because they were literally just thrown around and those are now vintage and right. High, right, right you know, right. so you, you can't, you can't explain any of this stuff none of it makes any like into like logical sense 
So yeah, you're right. Why do you want it? If you want it to make money, then you got to get the original stuff signed by the artist that's editioned and blah, 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 blah. You know, and then Uh, earlier editions rather than later editions. And if it's, you know, if they reprinted it now versus the originals in 1985, well, that's it. I don't, that's a whole world that I don't know enough about to give you good advice. Right. Uh, Just as a side note, uh, Aaron, there are are three pages of Kirtesh prints available at uh, art.com if you're interested. Oh, that's really funny. Yeah. I want some Kirtesh prints. Who knew art.com was so handy? Yeah, kind of crazy, right? Yeah, I had no idea. Uh, I need to I need to go check that out. Andre Kirtesh. You like his stuff? I do like his stuff, and I never knew it before this show. I so. think I liked his earlier stuff rather than his later stuff. Uh, so, John, you, you should take this next. John talking about differences between lenses or asking about differences between lenses. Okay. Yeah. So John, uh, who I've met, very nice guy, um, wrote me, he, he sent me some pictures. He took some pictures of these four guys, one of which was with, uh, it's there, there's, there's one light over on the side, like a big umbrella or something. Uh, and then it's backlit by the sun. The sun's kind of going down. So the, the sun's close to the horizon. And he, he gave me two images, one with this sort of uh, fisheye lens from a little bit lower down, kind of looking up at them, mm-hmm. which is nice and contrasty. And the, and the front light is very obvious. The other shot is like a 51.4 prime. Uh, and it seems like there's a lot of flare in it. So it's not very contrasty. And the colors shifted a lot because of that and all the rest. Right. Of it. Right. And he was wondering about differences between lenses and whether or not he should you know, pony up for the 51.2 and that would give him better color than the 1.4 and whatever. Uh, and I, my answer to him was no, don't go buy the expensive lenses. They're not going to make that much of a difference. A 51 point any 50 millimeter 1.4 lens by any manufacturer is going to be an excellent lens. You know, that's basic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with, what is happening here is that he's getting some lens flare, which is causing there to be less contrast. And that's why the color shifts and all the rest of it, you know, that the, the, the differences between these two shots are more a a matter of technique and situation than they are anything to do with, um, the lens not being good or not being whatever, you know, that kind of, so what, I mean, for example, in the second shot with the 50, would you just flag the lens? Yeah, there, I mean, he said he had a lens hood on it, but I, I'm I'm guessing that it's the light not coming from the back, but coming from behind their heads is somehow getting in there and causing a little bit of flare. But mm-hmm. you know what? Lens flare is fine. The second picture is nice, you know? I, I don't, don't mind. Yeah. Uh, you don't okay. always want perfection. You can't always get perfection. And are there differences between lenses, you know, different coatings, anti-reflective? Yeah, there's that stuff. Different designs. Yeah, there's that stuff. But it's minor. That's like, that's like arguing between two different racing tires on your car. You know, like, yeah, there's a difference between the Pirelli and the Michelin, but like, is there that much of a difference when you're driving, you know, Mm -hmm. and how, how good of a person, how good does your technique and your driving have to be for you to even notice that there's a difference? Um, yes, I have expensive lenses, but there are actually problems with expensive lenses too. I was shooting last week with my 51.2, and uh, strobes in a studio, ISO 100, stop down to F7. So ideal situation for this lens. 
and the pictures are not that sharp, like to the point where I'm a little upset about it. Uh, mm. In fact, I have to go play with my 1.2 to see if maybe the focus has shifted a little bit, and I've got to, you know, try to do that uh, um, compensation do the, the, the thing, fine tune and camera. Yeah, but even mm-hmm. but even then, like it doesn't seem like it would be a focus thing because I was stopped down so far. That shouldn't be a matter. I guess my point is that the fancier, bigger lenses are often the more, even though they're built better like tanks, they're also more fragile optically because things get out of alignment easier because they're so much more complex. You know, there's more things to go wrong. Mm-hmm. I've had to send my 51.2 in like twice, I think already. And I've only owned it for like three years. Um, and I do not bang my lenses around all that much. Um, there was a, there was a post the other day on Petapixel. Petapixel? Um, I think it was. No, it was a photo faux blogger, you know, like one of those things. Okay. Okay. Photographer, maybe? Yeah, that guy. Okay. Is that Chris Gambit or whatever his name is? I think so, okay. yes. Uh, and it was something along the lines of that DXO Labs. Mm-hmm. Is that the people who do those? They do the, the sensor and okay. lens. Right. Metrics. So now they're doing lens things, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the post was basically here are the top 20 lenses on the DXO, whatever, and none of them are Canon. And Canon's going downhill with their lens build and they're behind love, the love, times. Love. And, I'm, <laughs> and I'm like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> like, I, it, 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 it almost, I almost sent the kid an email and it was just like, look, this FUD is beneath you. This is not, this is, this is BS. It's, it's trolling for comments. Yeah. That's kind of like, what that feels like. No, it's like the, the fact that some people tested some lens, who cares? You know, like, yes, a certain lens and a certain thing. I mean, that's, look, I'm a pixel peeper. I like my pictures to look perfect, but the, the gear is not more important than the stuff that I do with it, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it just, it just, oh, it drives me nuts. That kind of stuff. You know what? Canon makes good lenses. Pentax makes good lenses. Sony makes great lenses. You know, like Fuji makes good lenses. Any of this gear that you have nowadays is so good compared to so much of the stuff that was ever made. Right. There's nothing to complain about. And a 50 millimeter Canon 1.4 lens is, you know, one of the best pieces of glass you can possibly get. So if you're getting weird color and weird flare and stuff, you're probably doing something wrong. Rather than, you know, there, that there's, there's light coming in somehow and that's what's causing, maybe there's something wrong with your lens, but it's not that that design of that lens or that model of lens is no good. Um, you know, there are, there are differences in color and saturation, less color between lenses, I mean, very minor stuff, more, uh, contrast can be different mm-hmm. if the different coatings and different, uh, elements they use. So like the Canon L lenses use this fluorite floor, whatever, uh, uh, elements. And then they also have different coatings on them. So you get less flare and more contrast. Right. right. Same with Nikon. Right. They've got like their nano coating and exactly and, all that yeah. same crap. Yeah. But, but still, you know, none of that stuff is making that. I mean, the big leaps of that world have happened a long time ago. So the practical upshot, John is, uh, no, you don't need new lenses. Uh, and you, you might need a piece of foam core. Well, you know, the, the new, yeah, the, the new, um, yeah, exactly. Uh, so splurge on a $14 and 95 cent sheet of foam core. Um, there, there was, a apparently the DXO just rated the new 24 to 70 Canon, mm-hmm. which is like a $2,400 lens. 
they doubled the price of that lens for the new wow. version. That's crazy. That's a lot of money. And they say that it's amazing and blah, 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 blah. But like, uh, okay, you know what? The old one took a lot of the most famous pictures in history. I'm sure it was fine. You know, is the <laughs> yeah. new one better? Okay, maybe it's better. Maybe it's sharper in the corners. But like, you know, unless you're Gregory Crutzen and planning on printing these things at eight by 10 feet, a lot of that probably doesn't matter all that much. Look, I, I will be the first to admit I have been you know, in not gear acquisition syndrome, but gear paralysis syndrome yep. as a result of looking at all this stuff. And, and one of the things that I, that I found myself falling into was just exactly what you just alluded to is when the new one comes out, well, that must mean that the one that came before it was crap. Right. But, yep. but that's not what it means. No. It, it doesn't mean that, you know, when, when the new, uh, Nikon camera, whatever it is from these manufacturers comes out, that the previous model was now suddenly crap. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, I feel like complain about this stuff after you have a big body of work and you actually have, it's sort of, and this is not John, John's pictures are good, but there's a lot of people who, who, who write in and send this stuff in or ask these questions. And they, it's kind of like some guy who's out on the golf course for the first time and bitching about the clubs that, you know, uh, Tiger Woods uses are better than the ones that so-and-so uses. And he has the ones from so-and-so and he'd be a better golfer. If he... No, like, <laughs> go play golf for like 15 years and then come back to me. And then you can talk about the differences between lenses or, you yeah. know, the difference between clubs. Yeah. I, I could play golf with Tiger Woods clubs and he could play with a shovel and still. Exactly. <laughs> like, yes, there are differences and yes, there are whatever, but like ultimately go take pictures. If you want to sit around and you know in gear in general it's like you could sit around and masturbate about gear all day long but that's not going to make you a better photographer. Taking pictures will make you a better photographer. Anyway, whatever. But uh but yes, John in, in answer to your question, no, it's 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 that lens should be incredibly sharp and very very good. Don't bother buying the 1.2, it breaks too often. But it has really pretty bokeh. <laughs> Amazing Boca. That's well worth the $1,600. Um, <laughs> Great. Um, Alan's questions. You want to go through some of these? Alan, friend of the show. Hey, Alan. Uh, lots of stuff in Alan's email. Alan says, first of all, be a rebel and, and get a Pentax K5, <laughs> which I loved. <laughs> uh, yeah, I haven't uh, seen I, this thing. Uh, you know, I, Alan, my first DS or not DSLR, but my first SLR was a was a Pentax Super Program, and I have very fond memories of that camera. Um, about the Obama image, you say it doesn't matter what it was taken on, and that it was only in quotes a Mark III. But isn't the Mark III basically one of the highest end current SLR cameras outside of medium format? Yeah, True. it is. No, it is. And and look, he's the White House photographer. He's going to use a good camera. The right. point is that he didn't use the most absolute top of the line camera that anybody has because you know. Uh, yes, he used a good camera. He used a pro camera because he's a professional photographer, but they didn't go and get an eight by 10 film camera or a 60 megapixel back. Right. Right. You know, there's, there's a limit to all of these things, right? You don't, you don't need medium format unless you really need medium format. And even then you still have to go pretty far to need it. Um, right. He, he, uh, he, he goes on to, to ask, going to the extremes, what if the official presidential portrait was taken on an iPhone 5? Yeah, it's not going to happen because there's a little bit more to it than that. I mean, <laughs> if only because the presidential portrait needs to be good enough to make a big poster of it. Right. 
And you know what? You're not making big posters from an iPhone five, you know, um, with the light, right. You can get a similar result. You can get a similar result if you were, well, first of all, you couldn't get a similar result in the fact that he was using a fairly long lens on that portrait and the iPhone five, you have a very wide angle lens. Mm -hmm. Um, but secondly, you know, you look at those files, you know, the files on my, on my iPhone, they're okay. But you know, my, my, my 20 D eight megapixel camera, six years ago yeah, took a lot nicer photo than my iphone does look you know why the the, the files look amazing on an on an iphone 5 because it's a phone right <laughs> I yeah. mean, you know settle down yeah it's but a if, phone but if you open them taking- up and like when you open up pictures you took on your phone in photoshop or whatever they mm-hmm. don't look that good uh they're a little noisy you know the 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 the, the dynamic range is not quite as good but they're you not super sharp. I mean, they're fine. They're a phone. They're great for a walk around yeah. camera that you always have with you. But people talking about how this is going to replace real cameras. It's like, no, it's not. Yeah. We're not there yet. Um, but yeah. So anyway, uh, where's the line between pixel peeping and the EXIF start screaming? Uh, I, I think the, I think the line is there's a certain level of okay, this is excellent quality. This is good enough for the president's picture. And I think that is somewhere around 18 or 20 megapixels. So it's big enough to use it for any reproduction things they need, mm-hmm. but they're not being super anal about it, you know, which is kind of what it comes down to. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, he also says, Bill, I'd love to have a workflow episode. All right. So we, maybe we'll talk about that. Uh, a couple of people wrote in saying when we, we yeah, kind of hinted I- at it. I would, you know what, as I'm, as I'm now starting my own or, or restarting, I suppose, my own photographic journey, I, I would love to kind of reestablish a, a workflow and, you know, folder structure and, and how to catalog things so that I can find them. So that, that might be fun. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think that that's, yeah, we'll talk about that. Uh, he says he loves the show. Okay, here's one last thing. Yeah, this last one. You, You've referred this. to yourself as an artist on more than one occasion. This is to me, I'm assuming. Uh, and I find that I can't realistically think that I am one. I think of myself as a photographer, uh, uh, although, uh, but I do not know what's needed to call oneself an artist. I think that I can vaguely take a vaguely pretty picture now and then, but I don't feel that what I produce is art. Um, is there a... Uh, is there an issue with me and my okay? Or simply that I refer to geek insecurity. Um, hmm. What do you think of this? Well, I mean, I, I, look, I think we've talked about this, or we've kind of hinted at it. Up until fairly recently, you you didn't refer to yourself as an artist. That was a that was a that was how other people referred to you. Right. Um. I I don't. I mean, if I'm being completely honest, I don't even know what art means. Sure. You know, I, I don't, you know, and define and, life. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in the current sort of climate where art is product and product is art, how do you define the two? How do you separate the two? Right. No, uh, true. either, either, either an end product appeals to you or it doesn't. And uh, I have a hard time with that. I, I struggle with, with what is art and, and what is not. And, and a lot of the things that are deemed art in let's let's confine this to say the contemporary art world a lot of the things that are deemed important pieces of art i really don't understand 
I've tried to. I like, look at them. Like that Rauschenberg thing with the eagle? <laughs> oh, that was just me, right? Yeah, yeah, it was you. But I mean, I, I, I just don't understand it. Um, I, I think that things appeal to me or they don't. Yep. And, they, and if they strike me or appeal to me on an emotional level, is that what art is? I, yep. I don't know. I, I, I do struggle with that, to be honest with you. And calling yourself one art, an artist is one step beyond even that question. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I use it very loosely. I mean, I, you know, I guess I'm, I, you know, I've showed in galleries and I'm in books and people buy my prints and this is what I do for a living. And mm-hmm. okay, I guess I can call myself an artist, but see that that's the good side of, of, of art and being an artist on, on the, on the other side, there are people that use the term artist just as an excuse to be weird or eccentric or right. right. You know what I mean? Yep. To be difficult, yeah. even. I, yeah, I'm not. A, I don't claim to be an artist so that I can be a diva about this stuff. Right. I claimed about. I mean, there's a certain amount I would claim to be an artist in front of certain people, if only to not get the respect that I really want their respect, but just not have to deal with the BS of somebody having that conversation. Mm-hmm. You know. Yes, I'm an artist. I'm a photographer. Yeah, it's it's a very it's it's. Become, I tend to say a photographer more than an artist. I say an artist in the purview of this show, just because it's generally germane to our topic of the art sort of back end artistic impulses and philosophy that we talk about. Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, um, it's but it's it's you know it's a term that I think has been bastardized. True. Yeah, and I, it's, it's 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 not on my business cards. Yeah, it's used as an excuse. Yeah. Um, but I, you know what, I think that there's, but there's a certain amount of not fake it till you make it, but you know what, it comes down to how you feel. If you are confident enough, if it doesn't feel weird, I don't feel weird saying that I'm an artist because mm-hmm. I think I have the stuff to back it up. Sure. But you know, so I, at a certain point, it's all about how comfortable you feel with some sort of label on you and whether that's in your own head or that's out in the world, you know, I mean, certain people are going to call you an artist at a certain point. And either you say, I'm not an artist. I'm just a guy who holds a camera. Or you go, you know what? I'm an artist. If that's what you, oh, that one you want to call me? Great. It just feels like it's a very vague term. It you know, it's vague. like when I, it's like watching television when somebody says I'm a scientist yep. or he's a scientist or she's a scientist. Yeah. Like you don't, you don't go to school to be a scientist. Right. You know, what, what does that mean? You yeah. don't, you would be something, you would be a biologist or, or, or an anthropologist or a chemist or a yep. physicist. True. You know, it, it just yeah. seems like a, you're not a nurse, you're a painter or you're yeah, a, phot- it just feels I, right. like a weird catch all. It's even though it's almost tough sometimes even saying that you are a photographer. You know, there's people who, there's people who write us and say the same thing that Alan's saying, but go one step further and say, I can't, I don't even feel comfortable calling myself a photographer. And maybe you're not. Yeah. You know, it, it, maybe, you know, what, what's, what's the thing is like, you, you know, uh, you go buy a guitar, you're not a guitarist, you're a guy who owns a guitar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you know, we, we just got a, we just got an email. This can, he's going to laugh at this. Uh, Chris Connors just sent us an email saying that. Just he, now? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he, he says he's a, we're, we're going to slip one more email into this uh, thing. Okay. He says, I'm a, a chef by trade and a photo hobbyist. When people find out I'm a chef, they ask me what my favorite recipe is, akin to what's your favorite F- F-stop, I suppose. <laughs> when I talk to another chef, we don't talk about gear or other minutiae. We laugh about petty annoyances of dealing with the general public, and we talk about the craft. Uh, it's in this way that I relate to you guys so well. Other photo podcasters say that gear doesn't matter, but then proceed to talk about nothing but gear. You guys <laughs> walk the walk. Thanks. Nice. Thank yeah. you, Chris. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, Anyways, yeah, so 
Did you get that new whisk? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hear OXO makes some really great handled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I, don't, I only use silicone. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, good uh, stuff. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, so are we done with Alan's question? I think so. Yeah. I mean, okay. what do you think? I, I think so. I mean, Alan, if you, yeah. if you want to push it further, we can, yeah, we can always go further. Uh, okay. So photographer of the week, who do we got? Uh, monster of monsters. Is that, is that like moon, moon of my moons? Moon of my moons. That's right. Uh, captain of captains. Yeah. Uh, Richard Avedon. Yay. Richard Avedon. We, we are done Avedon. episode 40 and we've never done Richard Avedon. Yeah. Uh, so Richard Avedon, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think that, that all of the praise on him is deserved. I really do. Um, uh, one of the first people to take fashion out of the studio. And I think he actually, he was the first person to take it into the streets of Paris and really started creating these, these tableaus, these vignettes, um, using local, color local talent in addition to to the models but he was one of the first people that 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 really took the models and made them move instead of just having them posed yes in fact there's the there's a picture of like a girl kind of leaning over playing a pinball machine or something or at a Mm -hmm, bar mm -hmm. you know that shot i i think that i think that the work of avidons that i like the most is the early the more early fashion work yes uh, as much as I, you know, respect the American West white background stuff, uh, at a certain point, it feels sort of minimalistic for, it feels minimalist for minimalist sake. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I like it and I've copied it before and I, you know, like I, I think that some of them are excellent. I think that it, it's making an artistic point, but not necessarily making th- the best pictures, you know, mm-hmm. uh, interestingly enough too, the stuff out in the American West, he had casting people go around and find these people a lot of times. Right. They, they put ads in, in local papers right. and, and yeah. There so were you teams. say, Oh, well there's, you know, 20 people in this book and look how crazy they all are. It's like, well, you know what? They went and found those people. That's not just 20 random people off the street that they found in an afternoon. Right. Um, which is why when you look at your own pictures and you're like, my pictures don't look as crazy because my pe-. well, you know what? You have to go find crazier looking people. Mm-hmm. That's what Dick did. Uh, Richard Avon, great man. Talk about a great uh, Charlie Rose interview. Oh, fantastic. We got to put that one in the show notes too. Yeah, yeah. put that in there. Uh, there's also a, a documentary about him called Darkness and Light, which uh, is available on DVD, but it, the entire thing is also available on YouTube uh, in nine parts. I don't think I've ever watched that whole thing. Uh, it's fantastic. We, we've got a link to it uh, and all the different parts in the spotlight we did on Faded and Blurred. We'll put that in the show notes too. Okay. Uh, and then you know, uh, one of the things that I love about Avedon is w- when when he connected with photography as as a medium for him to express himself, he was all in from the beginning. Yep. And continued that level of passion and dedication to it literally until the day he died. Yep. Uh, even when he got sick, uh, before he did the American West, he was, uh, he had his hospital bed brought into the studio and was directing shoots from a hospital bed on set. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This, this was who he became. And, and, and that level of passion is, is so inspiring to me. I would love to be that busy. 
Yeah. Um, and, and, and yeah, he, I mean, even in his interview, he says that he doesn't know if he had to do over again, whether he'd have a family or not. That he yeah, felt that, like he could, I mean, we talked about that when we were talking about the hero Jiro mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, you know, there's, there's, he was, he was all in. Yeah. You know? And I think at there's the, something wonderful about that. At the cost of that. being a parent, at the cost of being a husband, at yep. the cost of being friends yeah. with, now, with someone. It, here's, here's a little philosophical question for you. If that is in response to making pictures for advertising and fashion, is that less meaningful than if he was making pictures for himself for art? In this particular case, I don't think so because he didn't – he wasn't molded by fashion or you think by the he, industry. He was always making his art. Whether they used it for fashion, that's their own thing. That's that's my perception okay, of it. Okay. Right. Okay. But if let's say he was doing just whatever they wanted to, and he was a workaholic, like is that is there is there is there virtue in being a workaholic for the sake of you know doing what everyone tells you to do, or is there is it is it mean more when you're doing it for you versus for other people? I think it means more when you're doing it for you when, when you're selfless, or or when you're that dedicated. I guess it's selfless. Um, because you're expressing yourself, it's, it's, you know, you have to do it. Okay. That to me means more than just being a workaholic and having to be a worker. And and maybe that's my own sort of wonky grid of, of justifying it. Um, but I mean, I've been, you know, I've, I've worked 16 hour days for someone else's vision and yeah, it's fun at first, but it becomes very tedious, very quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've done that in advertising. You've done that in art direction sure. where it's, it, it, it very much becomes someone else's project and you are merely the vehicle to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why, I mean, that's why I'm a bit of a, uh, whore, <laughs> a power grabber when mm-hmm. it comes to my own work. Like I, I want to do everything. Right. I don't want well, to. And, and maybe that's, gosh, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe that's, Maybe that's at least partially why you're that way is because you have given up creative input, control, uh, uh, creative license in the past. And and you saw what a toll it took on not only the end product, but but just your ability to appreciate or be in love with that process to get to the end product. Yeah, that's why that's why I don't do, you know, the, the photography that would make me more money. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if it's something I don't want to shoot, even if it's the smart thing to do, I'm not going to do it because right. I, I just have no inch. I have no interest in playing that game. I have no interest in prostrating myself to that God anymore, you know? Right. Right. And so in some ways I'll go so far in the other direction where I'll actually, uh, hurt myself in some ways by not giving in, but mm-hmm. it's like, you know what? Screw it. This is, you know, I have one chance. Right. Well, I think, you know, with Avedon, he came out of the gate so different, so powerful, so creative that it gave him license to kind of do whatever he wanted because the end result was so amazing compared to what people had had become used to seeing. Yeah, true. Uh, there's a great Irving Penn quote. He says, I, I stand in awe of Avedon for scope and magnitude. He is the greatest of fashion photographers. He is a seismograph. Okay. Here's the question, though. Is there is there a little rip in there? 
How do you mean? In fashion photographers. <laughs> well, you know, I think that's interesting. I don't know what, uh, when was this, when was this quote made? I don't know the year because okay. in his early in his career, that's, that's what he was known as. Okay. No, I, you're right. Yeah. So it, it could be, it could be a little, a lot of this stuff thing. too is like the picture of, uh, Kate Hepburn. I think it mm-hmm. is where she's making the weird face. Uh, uh, there's a lot of pictures by Avedon that are also, I mean, just a matter of having such a long career. Mm-hmm. You know, like a lot of it is, is about, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's the marathon, you know, it's not the sure. individual photograph. It's the, it's the it's, body it's of the, work, the body of work. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, almost all black and white too. Mm-hmm. Didn't like color. I don't know. Uh, Avedon, I mean, classic, right. You know, sure. the, the trick is to figure out what to t- how to take something from Richard Avedon that you can turn into something that you could use yourself. Right. And not have someone look at your work and go, Oh, he's trying to do Avedon. Or exactly. she's trying to do Avedon. Look, I mean, there's pictures in my portfolio that are Avedon esque, but I think that they are, they're good in my larger body of work, you know? Mm-hmm. So they're, I'm okay with that. You know, uh, I still think that they still feel like mine, even though they're on white background or whatever, you know? I, I think that uh, if, if you do like his work, if you're out there and you're listening and you like his work, dig a little deeper and, and read a little bit about the man behind the work because he, yeah. he really was an interesting person. Yeah. That doc, the telling you we'll do we'll the Charlie Rose interview. That's great stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Richard Avedon. Hmm. He also used to shoot the eight by 10, like a 35 millimeter camera. Yeah. You had said that very quick. There's videos somewhere. There's like teams of people. Like he's got one guy, you know, cocking the shutter and focus. And then there's another guy moving the film so it's like snap, snap, wow, snap, you know, and it's like he's it's almost like he's daring his team to keep up with him. Wow. You know, which is I mean, kind of cool, but also a little sort of like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> yeah, you can afford to spend twenty dollars a shot and shoot 400 pictures. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, also, though, you know, the flip side of it and not to get all uh, uh I don't know. Uh, was it gossipy? But you know, there's, there's, you know, he had a family and everything like that. But there's a lot of people say that he was gay and that there was a, there was a, this tension in his life because he couldn't express himself in the way he wanted to because of society at the time and all the rest of it. So couldn't express himself at home, you mean? Yeah, or yeah. you know that he chose to do put everything into these pictures because of that. So then mm-hmm. you kind of get into these questions of, you know, what was the real. What what are we really talking about here? You know, like what what were what are his motivations? We may never know, mm-hmm. but there may be more to it than just I wanted to make art. It could have been, you know, I'm trying to break out of this other thing that I can't quite deal with. Something maybe bigger than just his photography. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. And, you know, interesting. Uh, or or at least the 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 drive behind it could be different. You know. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh, Richard Avedon, amazing stuff. We'll put a bunch of links. I like the the people on the roller skates. That's one of his shots too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic. And apparently he would, you know, he was in there like some of these shots when they when they're you know talking to like you know Twiggy or whatever. Uh, he's moving and dancing with them and photographing at the same time. Right, right. You know, I've actually thought about trying to do some of that stuff. Where you're moving as well. Uh, yeah, we're you know setting up a camera on a tripod and then. You know, working on it, working on it uh, with a with a with a external release, oh, so I that see, I am I in see. front of the camera. You know, uh huh, uh huh. 
Um, kind of interesting. Yeah. I, you know, one set of pictures I don't like of his are those Beatles shots that are so famous. The weird, super trippy ones. Oh, okay. Well, you know, he's, yeah, he was trying new things. Yeah. I just, I've just never been a big fan of those. Big fan of the Dylan stuff though. Uh, and the, the woman jumping off the, with the umbrella, hopping yeah. off the, I mean, the classics, classics. Absolutely. Um, anyway, uh, anything else before we wrap up? I am good. I am good. Thanks for joining us. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, podcast at ontakingpictures.com is the email address. Yes. Uh, if you go to ontakingpictures.com slash podcast, you can find the show notes uh, for this and every other episode. And uh, Twitter? Twitter. Uh, Bill tweets at Bill Wadman. I tweet at Jeffrey Sedoris, J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S. You can also find me at Faded and Blurred. Uh, what about iTunes? Yeah, Faded and Blurred's great. Uh, yeah, if you if you uh, get the show from iTunes, or even if you don't, go on iTunes and, and rate our show. We had a few new reviews this week, and uh, it's good. So go on there, uh, review the show. That helps people find us and makes us in the what's hot section, which gets more listeners. And uh, you know what? Go, you know, talk to your friends. Tell them about the show. And if you have a big website or you do another, uh, you know, you run some sort of thing, you write for somebody and you want to do an interview with us. Yeah. Jeffrey's more than happy to do an interview with you at any time. <laughs> am I? Not sure. Is that, is that what I am? Uh, okay. <laughs> But, uh, yeah. Uh, But we will uh, be back next week with even more cantankerous conversation. That's right. Thanks for listening, everybody.